Uh, when I was a teenager, I was fascinated by the Guinness Book of World Records. I loved reading about the unusual things that people had done that topped everyone else. Did you know that we have a Guinness World Record right here in Marquette in the Superior Dome? Did you know that? Superior Dome is home to the tallest trophy in the world. How many have walked by this trophy in the Superior Dome? Okay, yeah. It's 22 feet, six and a half inches tall, and it was awarded because of the world's largest and longest skateboard parade, numbering over 340. Uh, by the way, both of those records have since been eclipsed. Fame and glory does not last very long, does it? It sure doesn't. But I remember as a teenager reading one record in the Guinness Book that I knew was wrong. It was the record for the woman who gave birth at the oldest age. Now, when I was a teenager, that record belonged to Ruth Kistler, who gave birth in 1956 at the age of 57 years old. And this was before in vitro fertilization procedures. So her conception and her birth at 57 was totally natural. What an amazing, amazing thing. But I knew as a teenager, that's not the record. I knew the record belonged to someone else. The record was set many years before that by Sarah, the wife of Abraham, because she gave birth to her son Isaac, a totally natural conception and birth in terms of how it occurred at the age of 90. 90. This watercolor painting really sets the image and the scene for us. Not only is this the record for the oldest woman ever to give birth, but this was a total and absolute miracle. Now, you might be thinking this morning, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? And I want to say to you, this has everything to do with Easter. Everything. Because all the promises made to Abraham and Sarah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said in John 8:56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it down through the centuries and he was glad. And all those promises were absolutely dependent upon the birth of their son Isaac. What we are rejoicing in today was set in motion by the birth of this little child. But friends, there's more. There's more. Because the way God dealt with Abraham and Sarah is the way He deals with you and me. And this goes to the very heart of Easter. This morning, we are coming back to Romans chapter 4, and I want to bring an Easter message entitled, Abraham, the Father of All Who Believe. And this is what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see a contrast. 
there's a contrast between Abraham and obviously Sarah and you and me. And Abraham had a problem. There was only one solution. And God responded to that solution. And the same is true for you and me. Now I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 4 as we look together at the last verses of this chapter. If you want to take the chair Bible in front of you, I encourage you very much to follow along. It's on page 1119. Let your very eyes see the truth from God's Word this morning. Let's begin by looking together at Abraham as we start in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Let's bow for prayer for just a moment. Oh God, teach us today the wonder of your great plan. Help us to understand that Easter was always in your mind from the very beginning. And the way you dealt with this very famous couple is the way you deal with everyone who comes to Jesus. Show us that great truth now for his sake. Amen. As we begin this morning, we notice that Abraham had a problem. He was reproductively dead. Now verse 17 is a promise that God made in Genesis 17:5. I have made you a father of many nations. You see the promise again in verse 18 from Genesis 15:5. So shall your offspring be. Now this was one of three promises that God originally made to Abraham. I'm going to have your descendants possess the land of Canaan. I will make of you a great nation and all the families of the world. Every family in the world that comes the way you do will ultimately be blessed. Now each of those three promises all depended on the birth of a single child. But here was the problem. Here was the problem. According to verse 19, both Abraham and Sarah were reproductively dead. The Bible says in verse 19 that Abraham was dead in his body. And Sarah was barren. The word is exactly the same. It means dead. It was used of bodily organs that are no longer able to function. Now you know when God first called Abraham and Sarah that Abraham was 75. Sarah was 65. She was infertile, unable to become pregnant. But then what did God do? He waited another 24 years until Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 89. Now, Sarah was postmenopausal. She could not produce any eggs at all. And Abraham was now impotent. 
The Bible says their situation was against hope. You see that expression here in verse 18. Against hope simply means that something flies in the face of what can be expected from a human standpoint. Do you know, Ellen and I, and any couple who has struggled with infertility, knows a little bit about this. Uh, Before we knew that God's wonderful plan for us was going to involve adoption, we went through several infertility treatments. I'll never forget when we went through the first one. Boy, were our hopes high. Boy, we thought, this is it. This is going to allow us to conceive, and then it failed. And our hopes shrank just a little bit. And then the doctor said, well, here's another procedure that we can try, and maybe that will work. And so we went through that procedure, and that one failed as well. And our hopes shrunk even more. And then there was a procedure that actually ended up being very unique to us. When I read about it and realized that it applied to our situation, I was very excited. I thought, this will be the one. And then it failed. And then our hopes were gone. And we knew what it meant to hope against hope. It would not happen. We were totally helpless at that point. It was humanly impossible for us to conceive. But now think of Abraham and Sarah. There were no in vitro fertilization procedures possible. Their experience was one of total helplessness, total impossibility, And Abraham and Sarah knew at that point there was only one solution, and that solution was trust in God was the only answer. I want you this morning to take a look at this photo that I'm bringing up on the screen. And what do you know instinctively as you see this photo? What do you immediately recognize? And you don't even have to be told. You know this woman is not this child's mother, do you not? You know that humanly speaking, it's impossible for a woman of this age to be the mother of this child. And you know she is either this child's grandmother or great-grandmother. This is not possible. Do you remember what Sarah did when at the age of 89 she was told she was pregnant and was going to have a child? Remember what she did? She laughed, didn't she? In fact, God said, I'm going to name your child Isaac, which means laughter, so that for all time everyone would remember that a promise of God was laughed at. You see, she thought, this is a joke, it can't be. Do you know many people think about faith in the same way that faith is a joke? They believe that it is believing in things that cannot be real or scientific. Christians are often accused of that. And so people think there are facts, and then there is faith. 
And Christians are those people that believe despite the facts. Let me ask you, is that true? No, it is not. No, it is not. Our faith is not based on what humans can do. It is based on what God can do. And that is eminently reasonable. If there is no God, then of course faith is unreasonable. But even the brilliant intellectual Charles Crothammer, who was not a Christian, said, it is not reasonable to believe there is no God. And if there is a God who has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, then faith is very reasonable. And Abraham understood this. Look at what is said about his faith in verses 19 and 20. Notice the three things that are said about his faith. Number one, he did not weaken in faith. Number two, in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. And then number three, in verse 20, he grew strong in his faith. I want you to think about what this means. Abraham contemplated this very same thing on the image in this photo. He considered this situation And the Bible says, in verse 17, he believed. And we say, how in the world did he do that? I want you to notice the key phrase is found in verse 20. He gave glory to God. He gave glory to God. Here's what Abraham did. He considered the glory of God, which is the sum total of his perfections. And as he thought about the glory of God, he knew two things about God that strengthened his faith so that he could believe the impossible could take place. Notice those two things that he believed. Number one, he believed God fulfills his promises. Let me ask you to look back for a moment at verse 17, and let me ask you, what is the tense of the promise that God made in Genesis 17 and verse 5? I have made you the father of many nations. Is that present or past? Which tense is it? It is past. I have made you. God was saying to Abraham, it is as good as done. It's as good as done. In fact, you may know that God actually changed Abraham's name at this point. His name had been Abram, which means exalted father. And now God says, I have made you the father of many nations. It is good as done. I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And here's what Abraham knew. God does not make promises unless he intends to keep them. Would you look at me and read with me Titus 1-2. Let's read this together. This is our hope. Would you join me? Let's read it. In hope of eternal life, 
which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. How many think it is eminently reasonable that a God who cannot lie makes promises that he will always keep? How many think that's eminently reasonable? Yes, absolutely. And then the second thing that Abraham knew as he contemplated the glory of God is that God's power guarantees his promises. God's power guarantees his promises. Look back at verse 17. And the Bible says this, the God in whom he believed gives life to the dead. It's a very interesting expression. When it says here that God gives life, the expression means to make alive or to vitalize. It means resurrection power that can bring life from the dead. Now do you know as Abraham contemplated this, and as he thought to himself, God is a God who has resurrection power, he can bring life out of that which is dead. This was not the last time that Abraham trusted that kind of power. Here's a famous painting on Abraham's greatest test. It was the willingness to finally sacrifice his son Isaac when God asked him to. It was the greatest test that Abraham faced in Genesis 21. And we have to ask this question. Why was Abraham ready to do this? You know what the answer is? He had already trusted God for resurrection power in the birth of his son. Please follow this this morning. Abraham's trust at this point was exactly the same as his trust at the very beginning. That is so crucial for us to see. God brought Isaac to life from two parents who were dead in terms of their reproductive powers. And now what Abraham knew is if I plunge this knife into my son and take his life, the same resurrection power is available to God and he can bring him back to life from the dead. How many think this morning? It is eminently reasonable to trust that God's power guarantees His promises. How many think that is eminently reasonable? Of course it is. Of course it is. And do you see what we see? As Abraham faced two humanly impossible situations, how can an 89-year-old woman and a 99-year-old man give birth to a child? How can I plunge this knife into my son at the request of God and both of those things result in life being brought from death? He knew God always fulfills His promises and God's power guarantees His promises. 
Now notice what God did. In response to this, notice what God did. God accepted him and gave him a living son. Look at verses 21 and 22. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why did God give to Abraham a righteous standing with himself? Why did he say, Abraham, it's at this very point, because you believed, I'm going to accept you into my family? It's because Abraham believed a promise that could only ultimately be fulfilled by a Savior. You see, the blessing that all the families of the earth, including your family, would be blessed, required a Savior. And God accepted Abraham because he trusted him for that promise, even though he could not have understood all that it meant. Let me ask you this morning, do you understand all that it means? Do you understand everything about it? We don't have to understand everything about it. We just have to believe that God can do it. And God honored Abraham's trust when Abraham put that trust in God and he accepted him and he gave him a living son. And years later on that mountain as he was ready to thrust the knife into that son, fully believing that he will bring him from death a second time, God provided a ram in the thicket instead of Isaac. And God was teaching Abraham this ram and the greater ram that is to come is how your salvation will come about. Now did you notice how verse 23 ends? Did you notice? But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. Look at that. This was not written for Abraham's sake alone 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Christ. This was written for our sake. Those of us who are here today at Bethel Church in Marquette listening to the Word of God, this was written for our sake. We're going to see how all of this is the meaning of Easter. Because, you see... We've got a problem also. There's only one solution to that problem. And when we take that solution, God will respond to us the same way He did to Abraham and Sarah. As you have your Bibles open, let's now move to the other side. Because the Apostle Paul in verses 23 down to 25 applies this to you and me today. And I want you to notice the last thing he says is about Easter. Look at verse 23. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. 
It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now I want you to notice the perfect parallel between Abraham and Sarah and us. We have a problem. And here the Bible describes this problem as we are spiritually dead. When the Bible says in verse 25 that Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday for our trespasses, that means we were spiritually dead. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, that all of us were born dead in trespasses and in sins. Now I want you to think about this. Dead people are incapable of doing anything for themselves. Spiritually dead people cannot remedy our situation. Abraham and Sarah were dead reproductively. They could not bring about life. So we, says the Bible, are dead spiritually. We cannot remedy our sin problem. There's a lot that I do not know about everybody who is here today, but there is one thing I know about every one of us. None of us can remedy our sin problem. It is too great. It is too difficult. It is too much a part of who we are. And the Bible is saying to us, as Abraham and Sarah were dead reproductively, so you today, me today, in our natural condition, we're dead spiritually. And then notice, there's only one solution. That solution, says the Bible, is that we must trust in Christ as our only solution. As our only solution. Did you notice what verse 24 says? It says that we need to believe. We need to believe. And what that word simply means is this. We need to trust God for what He has done for us. And that faith is always reasonable. It is always reasonable. God keeps His promises. And because He keeps His promises, it is reasonable for us to believe that as we are sitting here today in the deadness of our sinful condition, that He can save us if we will trust our sin bearer. Trust in Christ is our only solution. In his autobiography, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this so eloquently and so effectively that I want you this morning to see his words because they are the Bible's words. Do you not know that you are lost and ruined? And that none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. You are sick and diseased, but Jesus can heal you. And He will, if you only trust Him. You see, Abraham and Sarah had sick and diseased bodies. 
And only God could heal them. And you and I have spiritually sick and diseased spirits, and only Christ can heal us. There is only one solution. There is only one way. And then notice that God's response to us is exactly the same as God's response was to Abraham and Sarah when we place our personal trust in Christ as our sin-bearer. The Bible says God accepts us and He gives us a living Savior. Do you know verse 25 here in Romans 4? is the whole plan of God's salvation in one verse. Look at what it says. Who was delivered up for our trespasses, talking about Jesus, and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up on Good Friday. That solves our sin problem. God punished Jesus instead of us. And just as Abraham killed that ram instead of his son Isaac, so that the ram died in the place of Isaac, and Isaac was spared, so God killed his own son in our place, so that Jesus died and we could be spared. But dear friends, a dead Savior is no Savior at all, is He? A dead Savior is somebody who has not been accepted And if Jesus was not accepted, we could not be accepted. And so the resurrection proves that He was. He was raised for our justification. And so now the news that we preach today is if our Savior was accepted, then we are accepted. If we place our personal trust in Him. A couple of years ago, Jim Perko and I were witnessing to a young man that we cared for very, very much. In fact, I still see this young man from time to time, and I care for him and love him very much. And we shared with him here in our church this entire plan for his salvation. And we urged him to respond in personal faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he kept saying to us. I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough faith. He kept repeating, I don't have enough faith. And what we tried to explain to him is the issue was not about the amount of his faith. The issue was the object of his faith. As long as he looked at the size of his faith, he was trusting in himself. But we tried to explain to him over and over, Jesus is big enough to save you no matter how big your faith is. And we explained to him what he needed to do was take that faith as little as it might be and turn from himself and away from trusting in himself and put that little faith in Jesus Christ who was big enough to save him. You see, as long as we wait for our faith to be big enough, we are trusting ourselves. 
But what is saving faith? Saving faith is helplessness. Reaching out in total dependence upon Christ. That's what it is. Saving faith does not have to understand it all. Saving faith does not have to have all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. Saving faith does not need to be a large faith. All it needs to be is a recognition. I'm weak, I'm diseased, I'm helpless. I don't know if I have enough faith. But I will take what faith I have. I will turn from myself. And I will place it in the one who is big enough to save me. And the Bible says when we do that, God accepts us. He brings us into His family. And He gives us a living Savior. Is that not what Easter is about this morning? That is what Easter is all about. Let's bow our heads together. And let's close our eyes. And this morning, I don't know where you are at today. I don't know what may have brought you here. But I know this. God has brought you here that you might understand His plan of salvation. That you might see His need and your need. And you might throw yourself in faith upon what Christ has done for you. God delivered Him up for your trespasses. He raised Him from the dead that you might be justified, given a righteous standing before God, and made a child of His. And this morning, as you contemplate that, would you be willing to take whatever faith you have, turn from yourself, and put it in the one who can save you? You may say something like this in your heart, just silently, while no one is looking around and no one is listening, and it's just you and God in this quiet moment. You might say, Lord, I admit that I'm spiritually dead. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. And I'm not acceptable to you in my natural state. But you may say, Lord, I believe that Jesus is who He said He was. Oh God, faith is reasonable because you've proven it by raising Him from the dead. And this morning you may say to God, I, I repent. I turn from my own way. And I turn to you. You may say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of all of my sins, even the ones I will yet commit that you know all about and you died for. Grant to me the gift this very day of eternal life. 
that you said as a God who cannot lie, you have promised before the very world began. And make me this day a child of God. Lord Jesus, you may say, thank you for saving me. And then would you say, Lord, because I believe the promise of your word, because I believe you respond to the person who puts personal trust in a living Savior, I will now follow you with all my heart. I will live for you, God helping me. I know, Lord, I will not live for you perfectly, and I will come to you many times sharing my failures. But because of what you've done for me in your Son, I will live the rest of my life for you. Father, today, thank you for the clarity of the Word of God. Thank you that there is one plan. There are not multiple plans. There is one plan. And from the very beginning, your plan was to set forth Abraham and Sarah as the father and the mother of all who believe. To show that whatever we could do would never be good enough. And thereby, by simple and personal trust, no longer relying upon ourselves, but relying upon Christ and what He has done, He would grant to us full forgiveness, a perfect standing in Your sight that we are undeserving of and acceptance into your family forever and ever. Thank you. This is the message of Easter. At any time, in any generation, for any people, for any person. And I pray today that by the presence of your powerful Holy Spirit, That you would draw men and women, boys and girls, young people, to the foot of the cross, where the open arms of Jesus are waiting, where they can trust Him as Lord and as Savior, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this very day, I am a child of God. My name is written down in heaven. I have an inheritance that can never be lost. And one day, Jesus will welcome me home. Oh, Holy Spirit, bring that reality about today in the lives of men, women, boys, girls young people. How we praise You. How we rejoice. It's all for Jesus' sake.